0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy, and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon.
1: Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Houndsome. And I'm Megan Lee. If you love a story you love reading it over and over again, which you can also get joy out of reading someone's reinterpretation of it. When authors decide to take old stories that we know and love and turn them into something new, it can breathe new life into characters we thought had had their last adventure. Joining us today is Christina Henry, who has tackled fairy tales, J.M. Barry, and Lewis Carroll in this very same manner. Thank you for joining us, Christina. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
2: Um, Yeah, I'm the author of... Oh, gosh. Uh, 14 books. Two of them are coming out next year. So if you're looking at your count, saying, I didn't think she wrote 14 books because two of them aren't out yet. Um, I uh, live in Chicago. Um, <laughs> I like samurai movies. Um, yeah, I'm not really good at like these tell-you-about-yourself things.
1: I mean, I think all of your books are excellent. And the one you've got out at the moment is uh, The Girl in Red, isn't it?
2: Yes. Um, that just came out in June.
1: I nearly said The Lady in Red, but it is very, very different to the Christa Berg (laughs) song.
2: Yeah, just a little bit.
1: So obviously The Girl in Red is out now, but you started off with your series Black Wings. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so different to your later books, both in subject matter and tone. So what encouraged you to make the switch from the Black Wings style of writing to the reinterpretation style of writing? And what made you decide to start off with an interpretation of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland?
2: I mean, I guess, I mean, the first thing is that the Blackwing series got canceled. Um, the the publisher, I apologize for my, my inappropriate <laughs> question. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not, it, obviously it was devastating at the time, um, but the, the market for urban fantasy was uh, kind of really flooded at the time. And the publisher was like, yeah, we think the series has run its course. And um, so I talked to my editor and I said, I have this kind of, um, really loose idea that I wanted to do like a steampunk Alice in Wonderland story. And she said, well, you know, you have two books left in your contract and nobody knows kind of what the next big thing is going to be. So give it a whirl. So I really have to give my editor at the time credit for just kind of letting me plunge in and do something different. And, um, I don't think of the writing, um, like the writing I do now is any different from the writing I started as because, um, for me, every book is a discovery. It's the way that I write, um, I start with basically nothing and I write to find out what the story's like. So, um, the process isn't any different for me. Um, even if readers perceive the book as being different, like in tone or whatever, um, to me, it's just writing another book.
1: So you don't have a a different approach when you're dealing with a book that somebody else has created or creating a world that's uniquely your own. You still have the same planning process and plotting and the same sort of detailed characters. Is that right?
2: I love that you give me credit for like planning and plotting because I I don't do any of those things. Um, Literally every book that I've written has started from either a question um an image, uh like a character. Um when I was writing the Blackwing series, that whole series came from Maddie and Bezel. Maddie is the main character. She's an agent of death and Bezel's is her pocket gargoyle. And um I heard the two of them talking in my head. And I was like, who are these characters? So I wrote a book so I could find out. And then um like I said for Alice all I really had was um Alice in a city. I didn't have anything else really, and I just started writing so I could find out what happened. Um, for Girl in Red, I saw red in my head. Um, I saw her standing there wearing the red hood and carrying her bloody axe. Um, every book for me is the same, and I don't, um, I don't feel any particular, I guess, fidelity to um source material because I consider every story that I write my own. So um yeah, the process for me is always the same.
1: So in that case, how do you decide what you're going to expand or what you're going to add? So for example, in Alice, um, the Jabberwock is the main antagonist. But in the original book, which I'm a huge fan, it's just a short poem. And I mean Lewis wrote lots of poems. So what was it about that particular character or that particular poem that resonated with you in particular and thought, that's my guy.
2: No, it wasn't. See again, like you're just giving me too much credit. You totally are. Um, I'm a really, I always say this, um, and it's completely true. I am a half-assed writer. Um, I don't go into, I never, ever, ever think about my books, probably to the extent that any one of my readers thinks about my books. Um, I just write the story. So when the time came and there was a monster, it was the Jabberwock. It just was there. Um, I write chronologically um, and I don't outline. So a lot of times when I'm writing, I'm literally discovering the story as I go. Um, And a lot of things end up in the book subconsciously. Um, A great example is... uh, I read a review of Alice many years ago where someone talked about an early scene in the book where Alice and Hatcher swim through the river, you know, to escape the burning asylum. And I, at the time I was just like, in my head, there was a river next to the asylum. There wasn't anything particularly symbolic about it. And another reader was like, Oh, Alice swims through the river of tears. And I was like, huh? Oh yeah. The river of tears. I forgot about that. Um, So a lot of things just sort of happen in my books. Um, And yeah, I know it doesn't make me sound like a real writer, but it just sort of pops up. Uh, You know, you're preaching to the
3: converted here because that is exactly how I write my books. (laughs) No outline, no plot. Um, You know, because I think you're completely right. You know, I feel like if I don't know kind of who the characters are, it's, it's kind of my job to go on the adventure with them. And so... That's very hard to say. Well, here we're, we're going to get end up in a certain place because I'm not sure how we get to that place because I, you know, personally haven't been there. So I feel like, you know, when I speak to writers on here and they they have these quite detailed outlines and they have these plots and then they, they they have every chapter kind of page by page, it's it, I just it blows my mind because it's such a alien way of working to me.
2: I mean, I think that every writer, you know, writing is such a personal process, and for mm-hmm. everyone. You have to find what works for you. But I always feel like I sound like a fake writer when I'm on panels with other writers who are like, yes, I write a 25-page outline, and I have index cards with the timeline and all this stuff. And I'm like, woo, the roller coaster's off its tracks. Let's see where it goes.
0: No, I mean, I had this wonderful writing teacher who talks about how your brain is actually much smarter than you realize. And when you were talking about how like the Javowat was just there, when you had to come up with the antagonist, he would tell us that things like our brain already knew that, <laughs> like we'd already kind of done that. And we um, end up writing towards something that we haven't even consciously realized that we were working towards, which I quite liked that idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's
0: definitely, um,
2: it's almost like the definition of my writing process. Like, I'm really like a back of the brain writer. I mean, one of the reasons why I don't write an outline is because if I know the end of the story, it's not interesting to me to write. Um, You know, I really want to discover the book the way a reader would discover it.
0: Okay, that's so that's interesting because a lot of the the stuff that you're writing at the moment is kind of reinterpretations, retellings, and obviously you you have already said that you don't feel a particular fidelity to the the source material, but is there a point where you're trying to stay semi-within the kind of original narrative, and at that point, how do you not lose interest in it if it is something that you are kind of reimagining?
2: I I don't. Ever try to stay within the original narrative? <laughs> I never do. Um, yeah, I just kind of do what I want. Like it's my story, and I do what I want. And like I said, I don't really think of it as I. I really dislike the idea that people think writing a so-called retelling is different than writing uh, a, a quote unquote original work. And the reason why I dislike that is because every single story is a retelling. Every story is. Has been influenced by another story or uh, by a variety of stories. Even something like, I'm looking at my bookshelves, um, like Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Pet Cemetery is a book about death, right? Like basically about fear of death, about like wanting to bring someone you love back from the dead. Well, we've told this story thousands of times and thousands of ways, starting with Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, nothing is original. I think of storytelling is like um like telephone. Have you guys ever played that game when you were a kid? Telephone. So you like a bunch of kids would line up, you know, and the first person would whisper something in the ear of the second person, and then that person would whisper in the next kid's ear, and the next kid's ear, and the next kid's ear, and so on down the line. And then at the end. The first person who spoke tells what they said, and the last person in line tells what they heard. And they're always two completely different sentences. And I think of storytelling like that. We've been telling each other stories ever since we could talk as humans. And we tell stories to a group of people, and those people hear those stories, and they take elements of those stories, and they retell them. And the stories change in the telling. And so I don't think that what I'm doing is really anything different than what storytellers have been doing and continue to do and that every storyteller does um, when they're writing.
1: Well, that's interesting, but it makes me wonder if that was the case. Um, Instead of writing Alice and basing it in characters that we already know, Why didn't you just write a novel about a young girl in a brand new fantasy world escaping from um, an asylum and going off on an adventure? Because I would have read that as well. You know, I mean, I loved Alice, but I would also have, have read that story. So what made you think, well, actually, this story would work better if I had it as based on these characters that people already know?
2: I just wanted to write Alice. I mean, it was literally just that. It was just, oh, huh, I could do this. And then I just started writing. I mean, it, like, I I, I wish I had, like, a real concrete answer, but it's really just more of, like I said, I had this idea, maybe I would write, like, a steampunk Alice, and, of course, the book turned out to be a completely different thing, but um, I just started writing, and
1: that was what kind of came out. So let's try and work backwards then. So The Girl in Red um, mm-hmm. is a... I hesitate to say retelling of Little Red Riding Hood, because apart from the journey and the grandmother, I don't think that there is a lot in it that really does correspond with the Little Red Riding Hood story. And you said that you saw red in your head and she just kind of popped up there. So Mm -hmm. again, why did you kind of go, well, it's not a case where I want to write Alice. It's like, well, I want to write red. How did you then link her back to the fairy tale and think, you know, I kind of want to interpret that?
2: I didn't. And like, again, in sort of a conscious way, it was like, oh, she's there and she's wearing a red hood and she's got an axe. And like a uh, little red riding hood has a linear structure, you know, like she's walking through the woods to a concrete destination. And I thought, well, you know, I could use her grandmother's house as a destination. And then I started writing so I could find out about her and who she was and why she was going there.
1: So it's kind of a mix of, the type of storytelling that appealed to you and also the symbols within it. And after that, you just kind of went, everything's open and I'm just going to go for it.
2: And that's kind of what I do for everything. I mean, like I said, I don't really ever feel like I owe something to um, other storytellers, you know, because once I start writing it, it's my story. Um, And I think that if you start thinking too hard about, oh, well, I have to, you know, be true to X, Y, and Z, um, the only story that I ever felt I had to be true to something was Lost Boy, um, because I wrote that book so I could find out why Captain Hook became Captain Hook, um, why he became the Captain Hook of Peter Pan, so I needed, um, at the end of lost boy for him to be the person he is at the beginning of peter pan but other than that i didn't think um and i didn't even feel uh like i had to use barry's geography i just made up my own geography of the island and kind of did whatever
1: charlotte was saying that that was her favorite <laughs> book <laughs> i was indeed that i really did like that i mean we're also a podcast about women and female writers and i love all of your books. I found a little bit of the violence in Alice a bit, a bit unpleasant, but I still loved the character palace. I thought she was amazing. The Mermaid was just so different. I loved Red in The Girl in Red, and I was trying to explain it to these guys after I'd read it, and I was like, I don't really know how to tell you because it's kind of Red Riding Hood, but not, but also uh, A Journey, but also some sci-fi, but also not, and The Walking Dead. And it was, just, it was just so many wonderful things. Um, but The Lost Boys was very different, um, I must admit, and it was just... If I had to pick one of your books to read again, it would definitely be that one that I would reread the hell out of.
2: And uh, I hear that from a lot of readers, actually. That Do you? Favorite.
1: Yeah. Ah. Oh.
2: Mm-hmm. Lost Boy or Alice? But I think Girl in Red's catching up. <laughs> well, it has only been out, what, a couple of months, is it? Yeah.
3: Give it time. Mm-hmm. As a writer who, you know, obviously we're a feminist podcast, we like to talk about female writers and female characters. Um, was it at all, did you have to make a shift in thinking to write from a male perspective or to feature a book with, you know, obviously more a more male-heavy book? Or is it simply, you know, they're just other characters? Um, or was there some kind of like, you didn't have an agenda that you wanted to, it was simply just you wanted to explore these characters and how they kind of got to be where they are?
2: Um, I mean... For me as a writer, writing any character is the same. You know, Mm -hmm. you're just, you're trying to create a three-dimensional character. One thing that I was trying to get at in Lost Boy um, that I had observed um, with my son and some of his friends is um, kind of the way boys form like these little gangs with each other. (laughs) And there's like one little leader that they all follow And um, how they can be incredibly brutal with each other, but then at the same time be so tender in ways that, you know, sort of take your breath away. Um, So a lot of the relationships in the book are more like my observations of boys and boy behavior. Um, For me, a lot of ways that book is just sort of inextricably tied to my feelings about my son because he loved Peter Pan when he was a kid and we were like Peter Pan all the time and one of the reasons why um I wrote the book was because I was watching the Disney film with him for like the hundred thousandth time and I said to myself you know why does Captain Hook hate Peter Pan so much um I was like hey why don't I write a book and find out why
1: well, I'm actually really interested that you said that because I was just lining up on the tip of my tongue to say Disney's Peter Pan because I rewatched it with my daughter recently and I couldn't believe how horrible and awful Peter is just in general. And I mean, there's so many racist overtones and there's, there's so much sexism in it. It's just a, a horrible retelling, anyway. Um, but I mean, in lost boy obviously peter isn't the fun scamp that you have him in everything else you know i can't think of many interpretations of peter pan where he's the bad guy and i can kind of see where you're coming from that you looked at james hook but what made you think to turn peter into such a brutal character because i mean he really is horrible and surely there would have been other ways to um you know make them enemies it could have been a, a genuine friendly falling out that turned bitter so but so what made you go peter he's going to be an absolute bastard
2: because um, the only way you ever hate somebody that much is if you loved them first, and so um, you know, and if somebody loves you, you, like you really need to hurt them, right, in order to make them hate you in that way. Um, Lost Boy is the only book I ever wrote where I knew the last line of the book, um, and I knew that before I started writing. Um, so I didn't know anything that would happen between the first sentence and the last sentence, but I knew the last what the last sentence was going to be. And when I got there, I wanted to feel that I'd earned it um, and that, the, you know, that last line would be a heartbreaker for the reader. Um, it's also my little backhanded homage to 1984, which I think has the best last line of any book ever.
3: I'm trying to remember what it is now. <laughs>
2: So I don't know how long it's been since you've read 1984 or seen the film. Uh, It's been a while.
3: I studied it at college.
2: (laughs) So um, obviously in the book, Winston, the main character is, you know, sort of briefly tempted to rebel against the state. And at the end of the book, uh, everything that he's been through has, he's been sort of brainwashed back into, you know, a proper member of the the state of the community. And the last line is, he loved big brother. I remember reading that, you know, um, for the first time and my heart just shattering into a million pieces. <laughs> and um, I've always thought it was so powerful, um, you know, that this character who was sort of pushing and pushing like futilely against um, the system in the end is sort of crushed by the system. So, Oh,
3: I see what you mean about delivering a heartbreaker of a last line,
2: <laughs> and that was what I was going for when I I wrote Lost Boys. So I I had uh, four line four words, <laughs> and I was like, I need to earn those words. So when you get there, like you know, it it really like kind of punches you in the gut.
0: Mm,
3: and that's that's the beauty of storytelling. It's like I don't know how I'm going to get there, but it's really because I'm I'm a bit like you and I don't really have solid endings but then the last book I've just written it's coming out in a couple of years I did know the ending because it's a reimagining of a folk story and the whole fun kind of part of it was well actually this folk tale is kind of only the end of the story like how on earth do the characters get to that point and it's just such a an adventure to work out how they could possibly get to the point where you know one of them kills the other one. I mean, cause that's a, it's a huge thing. And they always like fairy tales, folk stories, they make light of quite big events um, usually because they're in ballad form. Uh, so, but when you're writing a novel, like you, someone doesn't just die on page one for no reason. There's all these kind of, there's this so much to explore to kind of get to that point. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why I really like the idea that you had this vision of the end, but you know, you weren't sure how to get there and you just set off on the journey.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not interesting to me unless I can find out as I go, you know, so when I get up to write the next day, I'm, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next. I might know what's happening in like the next minute, you know, because I usually stop at a place where I say, okay, well, the next thing that will happen will be X. Um, I never, ever, ever write until I feel drained, Because that's a good way to, you know, spend a lot of time staring in a frustrated way at your notebook the next day. Um, I try to leave some space for myself to get started again.
1: Well, it's interesting what you say about the different approach you had to Lost Boy and the other ones, because you kind of said the other ones, you just had a an idea in, in mind of a character or someone escaping or swimming across a, a river. And then it kind of yeah. went from there. But obviously, not only with the fact that you had the last line in your head, but the fact that you're, the Lost Boy is the only one that really that is a prequel, because Alice is very much set after her um, her events in Wonderland. Um, the Mermaid is obviously, I suppose you've kind of got the, the fixing point of P.T. Barnum, but is generally, you know, a story what happens after the Mermaid has come onto land and got married and so on. Um, but with Lost Boy, you've obviously got to write to a point and, you know, get your characters to a certain situation. So did you find that quite liberating kind of going that's where i've got to go and you know i'm i'm driving for it or was it quite exhausting or was it completely the same as writing all your other books completely the same
2: yeah i'm like i'm really i'm so boring because i'm just i just i have kind of the same process for every book um where you know it start. i mean even having the last line from lost boy it's really like starting with nothing you know it's just one line and um Almost all my stories come from that. They just come from like like I said, one line, one image, one whatever. Um I have a book coming out next year called The Ghost Tree, which is a horror novel set in a Midwestern town on that ha- um has been cursed. And the genesis of that story was a line I wrote in my notebook 3 years ago. And all I wrote was meet me by the old ghost tree. And then, you know, last summer I wrote a whole book from Meet Me by the Old Ghost Tree. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know why the ghost tree was important. Um, I just started writing and suddenly I had a book. Well, not suddenly, like six months later.
1: Well, you're in great company, because I've often heard it say that even Agatha Christie didn't know who the murderer was until she actually got to the last page. So it's not like you're alone in, in this kind of thing. It's, it's a definite way of doing it. And I mean, one of my favourite authors is John Connolly, and he's very much the same. He just kind of goes off with it. And he's a bestseller, much like you. And he's got some fabulous books. And I think you do get an energy to a story that you perhaps don't get if it's very, very confined. Uh, although I then you suppose, on the other hand, you have George R. R. Martin who just goes with it and it rambles and it goes on forever mm-hmm. and then never gets finished.
2: Well, I mean, and like I said, I think it really depends on your personality. I mean, when I've talked to other writers about their process, you know, they're like, yeah, I would never do that. Because to them, it would literally be like, you know, jumping off a cliff without a bungee cord, you know, that that would be just um, sort of overwhelming for them to try to imagine moving forward without knowing where they were going. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's personal, you know, like all writing, the process of writing is personal, which is why I hate to give writing advice because um, especially new writers tend to take your advice very, like very much to heart. And then they think if they can't write like that, that they're doing something wrong when really, you know, sort of figuring out how what the best way to write is for you is part of the process of becoming a writer.
0: Can I ask uh, a slightly cynical or potentially shit-stirring question? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm sort of guessing, obviously tell me if I'm wrong, but with the the kind of the Alice, Girl in Red, Mermaid, Lost Boy, you are sort of pulling it off these kind of very well-known tales, um, fairy tales and and others. If you work from, say, just a kind of a sudden inspiration, do you think, you know, if, if you're continuing to write these things for the publisher who would like kind of uh, retelling inspired type books to sell, do you find yourself having to kind of map whatever your inspiration is to the kind of the selling point for the publisher?
2: No, uh, Well, I mean, the publisher would like X, Y, Z, but I only write books that are interesting to me, Um, which is why The Ghost Tree, which is coming out next year, is not a retelling of any kind, Um, except to the extent that it was influenced by Ray Bradbury and Stephen King and their kind of -of coming-of-age stories. but so in that sense, it is a retell. It is a retelling, um, but it's not an overt retelling like the kind you're talking about. Um, and the book I'm writing now is not a retelling either. You know, it's just a horror novel. And the publisher said we'd really like you to do another one, and I said I don't have any ideas for one right now. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I can only write books that I'm interested in. So um, I can't, you know, if someone comes to me and says, can you write a Beauty and the Beast story? Well, the answer is going to be no, unless I was already thinking
1: about one. So could you share with us then what the thing that interested you in all of your previous books were? there was obviously one thing that really captured your attention and and made you think about it and really motivated you to write it what was it in sort of alice and um the mermaid you said obviously in lost boy it was about the relationship between hook and peter and what happened before that um mm. so you know what was it in particular that drew you to these
2: well i mean like i i mean like i said like for a girl in red like i saw her um you know wearing her red hood and you know carrying an axe and so i just i just wanted to know who she was um you know, I just wanted to know, like, how she'd gotten there, you know, holding that bloody axe. So I just wrote the book so I could find out. Or, like, with Alice, I had, you know, like I said, this sort of vague idea of a steampunk Alice. But I, you know, just really saw kind of this dirty city um, that was built a lot like a rabbit warren. And, uh, you know, again, I just, there was Alice and I wanted to find out why she was there. Um, I don't think of my Alice as being related to Wonderland at all. Like my Alice has not been to Wonderland. She's been to the old city, which is not Wonderland, 100%. Um, Yeah, I mean, like for the mermaid, the mermaid's not the little mermaid, by the way. Um, I know people think it is because I have written other retellings, but that was not how I conceived it. I didn't conceive it in any way related to Uh, hans christian anderson's little mermaid i just wanted to write a story where pt barnum um i loved i love uh the history of pt barnum and um i wanted to write a story that was about pt barnum and the fiji mermaid hoax um which is a like a hugely famous hoax in the u.s and um Actually, when I proposed the book, there was some fear from my UK publisher that UK readers wouldn't know who P.T. Barnum was. And like six months before the book came out, uh, The Greatest Showman was released. And so when the book came out, everyone was like, oh, yeah, P.T. Barnum. Um, That's but, good timing, um,
1: Christina. Really good timing.
2: <laughs> right. I would proposed the book two and a half years before that. But um, so I... Uh, I had wanted to write about the Fiji Mermaid hoax, but I wanted the the Mermaid to be real and not a hoax, um, basically. So that was like the impetus for writing The Mermaid. It was P.T. Barnum
1: and The Fiji Mermaid. Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so The Fiji Mermaid was yeah. a hoax, but obviously yeah. you turn that on its head and mm-hmm. she's actually real, but nobody right. believes it.
2: right. Right, which is totally what I think would happen if, you know, whether it's the 19th century or whether it's the 21st century, I think that if people encountered something that was like truly supernatural or truly magical, they, half the people would be desperate to believe that it was real. And the other half would be desperately trying to prove that it's not.
1: So, I mean, obviously, like you say, the Fiji Mermaid is a very definite point in history. And Mm. of all the the ones that you've done previously, they were all fictional worlds. I suppose, obviously, Black Wings is sort of set in this world. But Mm -hmm. they were mostly fictional worlds. But this one incorporates P.T. Barnum and his associates. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where do you draw the line when writing about fantastical creatures and real life people? How do you go about mixing the supposed real world with the sort of what people know is the fictional source material I know obviously it wasn't the Little Mermaid you were rewriting but we all have set ideas in our head about mermaids and you Mm -hmm. said you like to just write and go for it and just create it all so how did you go about then incorporating real historical people and almost anchor events like the Fiji Mermaid into a story that's fictional
2: so I mean I didn't feel again sort of any particular fidelity to like the real life P.T. Barnum Um, I mean, I did research, I didn't, but I didn't, you know, go out and try to make sure that my character of Barnum was exactly like the real PT Barnum. What I did use as touch points were, um, kind of real historical events that happened in Barnum's life. And I, um, kind of reworked them to, to fit my story. So like, um. The dates and the places where um, my fi- my Fiji Mermaid goes in the book are dates and places where the r- where the real quote unquote real <laughs> Fiji Mermaid was exhibited. Um, information about PT Barnum's American Museum that was real, um, but other than that, I mean the characterizations of Barnum of charity of like Levi Ly- Lyman, I just did what I wanted, you know, to make them fit the story because um, again, once they're written into the story, they're mine. I don't think of them as belonging to history anymore. They're, they're mine. I'm not writing nonfiction. I'm not writing a, an educational <laughs> tome. I'm writing fiction. Um, so when you're writing fiction, your characters work for you and they work for the story.
1: So just as an aside, I know it's not on your books, but I'm, I'm intrigued about P.T. Barnum because obviously in The Greater Showman, he was seen as this kind of visionary, this wonderful person, this sort of great humanist who was trying to promote um, minorities and, and look after people. Whereas I've read several articles that say he, actually he was just out to make money and exploit them. And I know that in The Mermaid, you kind of have a little bit of an ambiguous character when it comes to P.T. Barnum. He kind of does care but then he's also quite horrible. So, I mean, how much of that is based on reality? Did you find that the real, real P.T. Barnum was, you know, quite horrible? And you're like, well, I'll just give him a bit of a nice side. How did you go about that?
2: He, he was horrible. So, <laughs> yeah, so I can tell you that, um, like, even when I just saw the preview for The Greatest Showman, because at that point I had finished the book and I'd already handed it in, um, so obviously, like, you know, I had sp- – spent time doing research prior to that when i saw the preview i was like that is not pt barnum even just the scene in the preview of him like making a little toy for his kids um he he had five children and his daughter said they never knew him you know even the oldest one who spent the most time with him said that she never knew him until she was an adult he was never at home. He wasn't like a devoted father. Um, he was terrible husband, horrifically bad. Um, he was, uh, you know, dismissive to his wife. He would be, (laughs) he cheated on her like publicly, like really publicly. Um, one time they were, Gosh, I forget where they were now. I think they were at Niagara Falls. It was definitely a, like a waterfall, and she—they were going downstairs, like you know, to to see the falls from a different view. It was like a long set of stairs, um, and then they had to go back up. And Charity, his wife, was really um, reluctant to go. She was frightened. She was like a very kind of nervous, like uh, highly strong woman, and she started to like grow weak like she started to feel faint and she told pt barnum that she felt faint and she needed help and he laughed at her and left her there and she fainted and two other men who found her later carried her back up to the you know like to the surface to to the top of the stairs um if you just want to know what kind of pt barnum kind of person pt barnum was that's definitely indicative of his character
1: Well, that's really interesting because obviously they make a big thing in the greatest showman about how he kind of does it all for his wife and she's his redeeming feature and at the end it's her that brings him round. whereas obviously in your book um, (laughs) there's there's none of that really but there's a wonderful relationship that forms between his wife and amelia the mermaid Mm -hmm. um so i mean I asked you about Petey Barnum and obviously he was a complete bastard, but what about mm-hmm. his wife? Cause obviously she's kind of a sideline in history, even though she was a big thing in the film. How did you go about creating a character? Did you kind of go, he's a bastard. What kind of man would stay, sorry, what kind of woman would stay married to him and then compliment the mermaid or.
2: I mean, you have to think about it in terms of the way we think of it now is, Oh, well, why didn't she just get a divorce? But it's not like divorce was so easy then least in the US. Um and a lot of women couldn't even own their own property, um, you know, manage their own money. Um, so like pretty much once you were married, you're stuck with it. Um and the she's not really described in research about PT Barnum except from Barnum's point of view. So like, you know, letters that he wrote to other people, um, or Things like that, you know, like all the information is sort of filtered through Barnum. So um, again, I just wanted to have this idea that, you know, she she was my charity. Um, she was, you know, in some ways, sort of the typical like long suffering wife. You know, she was she was sort of buffeted along in Barnum's stream, and that once she meets Amelia because Amelia is not afraid of Barnum she's not afraid of anybody because she's always been her own person um that Charity would be some in some way positively influenced by that but at the same time you know I do kind of wonder what happened to Charity after Amelia went away
1: yeah it's just that's almost the heartbreaking side of it um and I mean obviously Amelia kind of goes on to have her own happy ending I don't want to spoil it but it's it is a, a bittersweet kind of happy ending for Amelia, isn't it? I mean, no, no one in The Mermaid comes off completely well.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm really capable of writing a book that's like 100% happy at the end.
1: Obviously, your books deal with, as a source material basis, you've got things like Alice and Peter Pan and The Little Mermaid, but not. Um, and fairy tales so I guess people who don't understand that your story is brand new and original are going to look at it and go oh brilliant there's like some kids stories and some YA stuff there um, mm-hmm. and I know that Lucy and I have previously talked about some ourselves and other female writers we know being pigeonholed as YA authors because we deal with these kind of topics and I especially imagine it's going to be the same for you because you are writing something that is seen to be a sort of children young adult thing I mean is that something you kind of experience
2: oh yeah and it's um I've got to admit that it's really frustrating because you want your books to reach their correct audience um and I just don't think that the subject matter of most of my books is appropriate for young adults um they're written with an o- adult audience in mind um you know but it's sort of, it is sort of interesting the way female authors who write these kinds of books um are talk even talked about the language that's used to t- talk about them is different from the language that's used to talk about male authors who also do um these kind of t- types of books um like Gregory Maguire writing Wicked or China Miéville writing *Railsea*. Um, They're both great books, um, but the language that's used around them is not retelling. It's reworking, reimagining. And you can sort of see the passivity of retelling versus reimagining, which sounds, you know, much more exciting, doesn't it? Or reworking, which sounds a lot more rigorous um, than retelling. Um, I've sort of developed a really irrational hostility to the word retelling um, because I think it's really often used to dismiss um, dismiss women's work. Probably like one of my biggest frustrations is that I don't think um, because of the s- obvious source material of some of my books, I don't think it's as obvious to some people that I'm writing horror novels. Which I definitely am. Um, I think what I'm writing about is pretty horrifying, um, and I think too that I've I know I've gotten some pushback from some readers and reviewers who who would not push back the same way on male writers um, because of the subject matter that I'm writing.
1: It's interesting that you say about horror novels and you're you considering your work horror novels, and certainly I came away from Alice feeling just as disturbed as i did when i'd read one of robert sherman's um horror stories and it's that just general unease that everything is sort of recognizable but at the same time shifted in a very kind of violent and unpleasant way um and again i could see um Again, I could see Lost Boy being interpreted as a horror novel because it's got the very sort of Lord of the Flies idea. And the horror is in, obviously, comparing childhood with brutality that goes on. And The Girl in Red, again, couldn't argue with that. Perfect horror novel. Um, got many of the elements that are required. And I love the fact how she goes through saying how she reflects on what she's doing compared to horror novels and not sorry, horror novels, horror movies. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, well, I keep my bag packed because I've seen all the horror movies where they run out and they haven't actually got the bag and I'm going to make sure I've got mine. And she's the only one that is prepared in this way because of her love of horror movies. But where's the horror in The Mermaid, really?
2: Yeah, oh my gosh. I think um, the fact that Barnum thinks that she belongs to him, I think that's pretty horrifying. I think the fact that Charity, in essence, belongs to her husband is pretty horrifying. And I think the fact that a religious extremist would try to kill the mermaid because of she does not reflect his worldview is pretty horrifying. For me, like the mermaid is sort of not as obvious horror. It's sort of like low grade horror, everyday horror, like the everyday horror of being a woman in a society like that does, that treats you as something less than men.
0: Well, I would also say that um, sorry, that you have someone like Shirley Jackson with We Have Always Lived in the Castle is a horror and a social commentary at the same time and it gives you the same kind of feeling while also being very much a commentary on what society forces, you know, the roles of women into and, and things like that.
2: I love Shirley Jackson and I would definitely say that she's one of my like influential authors. Um, I, I, I think, you know, roughly like the top three, like female authors that have influenced me are Angela Carter, Shirley Jackson, Daphne du Maurier. And if you've read my books, you can probably, you're probably going, yes, yes, yes. I see that. I see that. I see that. I was Um, indeed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're like, yep, yep, yep. Um, but the, I think that, um, when people think of horror, their first thought is, you know, splatter movies. Um, and in fact, horror has, not o- has is not only like more wide and varied than that, but also um, women have actually been keeping the flame alive <laughs> for like about a hundred years. And Gothic novels were almost exclusively the province of women um, and women writers for a long, long time. Um, but we think of horror as being a men's genre because there have been so many, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, um, prominent male horror writers, obviously Stephen King at the top, but like, you know, Ramsey Campbell, um, Clive Barker, and then the, the horror genre, the film genre, um, is been so overwhelmed by like a, a male gaze um where you know women are objectified in in horror movies they are treated as like disposable bodies um except for of course the virginal final girl um many many horror directors from sort of what you might think of as like this last golden age of horror like in the 70s and the 80s were men john carpenter wes craven um you know, I think that we really think of as horror as being something that belongs to men, but like, you know, it's women um who've been who have been sort of aware of sort of the low grade everyday horror um and who've been writing about this. And it's it's our bodies that are used as props in these stories. Um I really think of horror as something that's always belonged to women. And I think that um, I think more women writers are out there now trying to take it back from men.
1: I think it's beautifully clear from your books that horror can come in many different forms. And I think you've convinced us that retellings don't need to be stilted or confined by the source material. So thank you very much for joining us, Christina. And I personally am very much looking forward to The Ghost Tree next year.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on your show.
0: Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.